Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Tasha Radel talks with the head of the Minnesota Turkey Growers Association about the bird flu outbreak in Indiana and the impact it may have close to home. I chat with a U of M climatologist on the record-breaking warm-up we had in 2015, and I get the latest on a new health survey from the Mayo Clinic. But first, as we get ready for the Iowa caucuses and then Super Tuesday and the Minnesota caucuses not far behind, a new book coming out soon by a Minnesota author examines the question that many voters have in this election year, why can't politicians get along and get something done? MNN's Bill Werner, that's a common complaint, isn't it? You bet it is, Scott. I hear it all the time. Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear has a new book co-authored with Todd E. Eberly entitled Polarized, The Rise of Ideology in U.S. Politics. Your contention is that political parties and politics in general have become more polarized in recent decades. Can, can you give us, well, I'm, there's probably ample evidence, but I mean, yeah. give us a little sample of, of what, uh, what drives that conclusion. Well, I think you see it throughout American politics at both the national and the state and local level, but just a few examples. Uh, we now know, for example, that uh, in, in the U.S. Congress, the uh, overlap in voting behavior between Democrats and Republicans is the smallest it's been in a hundred years. In other words, they mm-hmm. never uh, overlap. There aren't significant Republicans voting with Democrats and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one example. Another example, I think, is the uh, polarizing style of presidents. Uh, both uh, Bush and Obama have uh, really not been able to work well with the opposite party in Congress. Uh, And we see a lot of that also happening at the state legislative level. Why is this happening? I assume it's not only a political thing, but it's probably sociological, isn't it? An economic and all these factors? Yeah, well, I think uh, it's it's a perverse result of higher education levels. Really? Uh, yes, Interesting. As people become more educated, they tend to develop more ideological principles and adhere to them uh, very conspicuously. For example, uh, my fellow college professors are very ideological. Uh, that is, they have figured out their view of the world and really aren't persuadable to another view. Now, you're sure you want this on the air, Professor? Uh, It's a a fact, you know, and that's true with a lot of highly educated people, Uh, and those people are also disproportionately likely to be active in politics. You know, it's kind of ironic because you would think that in the context, and you work at a liberal arts college, uh, and one of the top liberal arts colleges in the nation, I might add, Carleton, And, and, and the concept of liberal arts is to try to open the mind, is mm-hmm, it not? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really not happening. It well, like. it uh, it depends on the professor, really. Okay, um, yeah. you know, it, I, I'm speaking beyond just, just your colleagues. I'm speaking yeah. of, of people who are educated by institutions of higher learning. Well, uh, we do know that uh, people who are more educated are more likely to adopt an ideology and adhere to it. And that's been, and as the level of education has gone up throughout the American public over the last 50 years, so has the role of ideology in American politics. And so what, what, what you're saying is that we have people, Democrats at one end, a, a highly educated, politically active group, and then we have Republicans at the other end, a highly educated, politically active group that is <laughs> in a much different way mm-hmm. politically active. And then we have this group in the middle that right. is 
some are highly educated and some aren't, but right. but but they, they are not involved. Right. Well, you can see that um, the parties used to be big tents uh, with a lot of different points of view within them, right. and those tents have become narrower. And as those tents have grown narrower, the number of people who say they are Republican and Democrat has gone steadily down. Uh, Gallup just this month put out a survey that showed that 42% of Americans are independents now, uh, 26% are Republican, and 29% are Democrat. And that Democratic percentage is the lowest recorded in the history of the Gallup poll. So the parties are shrinking. I want to read a phrase from the final chapter of your book. You say most voters in the United States are not very ideologically oriented. They do not seek to create or to adopt systems of thought in which issues are related to one another in some highly consistent manner. Caring about more than one value, sometimes they prefer a strong government here and a weak one there or want just not to decide at the present time. Thus, voters can hardly be said to transmit strong preferences for a uniform stream of particular policies by electing candidates to public office. That's a terribly profound statement, Professor. We are allegedly a nation of representative government. My question of you, have voters in some way abdicated their responsibility, and so why? Uh, well, I think uh, one of the problems is that there's so much shouting and polarization amongst those who are politically mm-hmm. active. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the whole tone of our politics uh, is unpleasant, and I don't think it attracts a lot of citizens unless you are strongly committed to a certain point of view. And, and even politics. Politi- and many politicians that I talk to complain about that, too, as well as average citizens. They, yeah. they lament it. Yeah, and one of the things that's contributed to it to this is that the media really gives anybody who wants to speak a platform now Um, and boy mm -hmm. do they use them (laughs) and the internet and social media has changed everything in that in that venue hasn't it yeah and i think it's driven down the tone of politics and increased the polarization Professor, you write that, that there are, there are some potentially some serious consequences of this. This long-term, what can happen to the nation if we continue down this course? Well, we can already see some bad consequences. I mean, yeah. voter turnout is low. Uh, it's, it's the lowest of any comparable constitutional democracy on the planet. It has been for a while, but it, it went up briefly, and now it's going back down again. So I think there's that problem of, of public disengagement. Uh, I also think that there's very uh, we know in fact that there's very low public trust in government uh, much lower than you find in other constitutional democracies and when you have that level of discontent uh, you can get really volatile politics and I think uh, uh, the scale of that discontent is evident in the strong support for Donald Trump on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left that's Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear co-author with Todd Everly of a new book called Polarize, The Rise of Ideology in U.S. Politics. It's published by Roman and Littlefield and will be out at the end of the month. Scott? And then it'll be available at your local bookstore and online. More Minnesota Matters after this. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. 
I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota poultry producers continue to keep a close eye on the avian influenza outbreak in Indiana. MNN's Tasha Radel caught up with the head of the Minnesota Turkey Growers Association to get the latest. That's right, Scott. The bird flu outbreak in Indiana really hits close to home for Minnesota farmers. At last check, animal health officials responding in southwest Indiana say crews have finished killing more than 400,000 birds ordered euthanized at the 10 affected commercial poultry farms. Joining me now is Steve Olson, president of the Minnesota Turkey Growers Association. Steve, can you give us an update? on what's happening on the ground in Indiana. Yeah, last week uh, a flock of turkeys in Indiana tested positive for a high-path strain of of avian influenza, and the strain was H7N8. And it's important to note that that's different than the strain that we had in Minnesota uh, and and the rest of the uh, other parts of the United States last year. And this is a North American strain, and in this case there was high mortality with the the flock similar to what we had in, in Minnesota and Iowa last year. Uh, there are there are eight other flocks that have tested positive for uh, a less virulent strain of of that same that same strain H seven N eight. And you know, you said it's not the same strain that we saw here in Minnesota. And I'm I'm from what I've been hearing and reading, is it less? Um, I guess less pathogenic. I don't even know if that's a proper term to be using. Uh, and actually, actually, that is the, the proper term to be using. You know, I don't know if it's left pathogenic because it did, um, you know, the, the flock that it infected, it did uh, have severe mortality. The other flocks, uh, what, what we do in a response is that, uh, that that first case, we draw a circle of, of about six miles around that, that first case and then start identifying other flocks that are in that in that perimeter and then start testing those flocks. And so the other eight flocks were picked up in that surveillance program. And so they were not showing any clinical signs. And so in that case, it was um, it was less, less virulent or not as strong. And, you know, does it concern you that we're seeing this in the heart of winter? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, we, our first flock last year came at the end of February, first part of March. And so it was still, still winter at that point. But, you know, this is a virus that that can be preserved in freezing conditions. And, and, you know, of course, Indiana is a little bit more mild than what it is in Minnesota. So they probably have more open water. They probably have more birds that reside there over, over winter. So in, in that case, it's not surprising. And, you know, have any officials been in touch uh, that you're aware of uh, to, to our folks here in Minnesota? Yeah, USDA has held um, conference calls to, to inform uh, interested parties in, in what's going on and have a discussion uh, and, and allow for a question and answer period. All right, and kind of shifting gears a little bit, here at home, we haven't seen uh, a case of avian influenza in, in several months, correct? Right. Our last case was June 5th, and since then, everybody's uh, cleaned up, disinfected, and been able to, to get back into business. And that's what I was going to ask you. Are we back at full production at our barns then? I, I believe that we are. I haven't heard. There were a couple that were that were delaying the restocking, but they were eligible. So everybody's eligible to restock. Some were delaying it just because of their the timing within their production system. But uh, if if not, they will be up and running soon. And you know, I, I also wanted to ask you: Do we have a, a number of, I guess, biosecurity measures in place as we head into the spring and summer again? 
Yeah, that's one of the major emphasis that we've had. And we've had biosecurity practices in place um, forever, just as part of our normal business operating. The the virus that we had last year, everybody was kind of reexamining it, and, and the virus you know, got through our, our normal biosecurity. So we, we've stepped that up. They've made some improvements in the in the buildings to help prevent uh, the virus from getting in. And then it's you know, making sure everybody's aware of what their role is in, in keeping birds healthy. And, you know, this case that we're, or these cases that we're seeing in Indiana, do you think it kind of uh, makes some of our Minnesota producers a little bit uneasy? Do they keep a close eye on it? Or is it because it's in a, a different state, we don't tend to worry about it too much? No, they're, they're definitely watching it, and, and we're getting information out to them uh, as, as it becomes available through USDA. Uh, but, yeah, our, our growers are definitely watching what's going on in Indiana. All right. And then my my last question would be, I know that uh, the USDA was working on vaccinations. Are we seeing producers vaccinating their birds or do we do we kind of wait and see what what I guess pops up? We wait and see what pops up. Um, you know, and the key with vaccination is you know doing it early enough to be able to protect the bird health. But because we don't have the, the H2 and virus and H5N2 virus in the area or in the United States right now, you know, that's delaying any kind of a decision to use the vaccine. Hopefully it doesn't show up again. Hopefully we don't need the vaccine. And that's also important to remember is that you know, the vaccine that was developed because of last year's virus will not work on the virus that is in Indiana this year. And, you know, for those of us that aren't really familiar with it, um, do, do we tend to see these, these viruses mutate? I mean, it, it doesn't, is it surprising that we're seeing different viruses pop up, I guess? Not at all. I mean, it, you know, they, there's there's uh, a couple hundred different types of, of viruses out there of, of avian influenza viruses out there, and most of them you know don't cause any any uh, mortality in birds, but there are some that do, and you know most of them it's like when you and I get the, the get sick or get the flu, it's like it slows us down for a couple of days and then we're fine, um, but because you know they're living organisms, viruses are living organisms, they do adapt and mutate as they uh, infect other animals and. And they can mutate with other viruses, and that's why we react so quickly to to depopulating the birds because we don't want that virus to spread. We don't, and that helps reduce the the chance of it mutating. All right. Anything else you'd like to add today, Steve? That I didn't ask you. You know, I again just letting people know that the virus that's uh, showed up and shown up in uh, Indiana again, there's uh, there's no human health or food safety issue with that, and they're working closely with CDC. To, uh, to track the virus. Definitely an evolving story that we'll keep a close eye on in the weeks to come. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. More Minnesota Matters after this. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woo-hoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Mr. Detweiler, it's time to wake up, Mr. Detweiler. 
Mr. Detweiler. How are we doing? Your surgery is over. Oh, it's over? What happened? Hi, Mr. Detweiler. Dr. Newman here. You have a new knee. It went great. You'll be up and around before you know it. And it's all because of you. Uh, what did I do? You were captain of Team Detweiler. You told us everything we needed to know. Your medical history, your allergies and prescription meds. You asked me tons of questions. What your options to surgery might be, what to expect during recovery. You even asked me how many knee replacements I've already done. Huh, I guess I did kind of run the whole operation, didn't I? Mr. Detweiler, we couldn't have done it without you. Patient safety. It takes a team. And patient involvement is key. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. With more tips at orthoinfo.org slash patient safety. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. This week, NASA came out with a report that 2015 was the Earth's warmest year on record by a record margin. I asked U of M climatologist Mark Seeley about the big warm-up, what kind of impact it could have on Minnesota, and why it's happening. Well, I think it's a composite uh, of several factors. The, probably the two most primary uh, contributors are the uh, uh, climate change. In other words, the fact that most of the oceans, as well as land surfaces, are uh, getting warmer with each passing decade. Uh, and then uh, the uh, strong presence of El Nino, the El Nino episode in the equatorial Pacific Ocean, which we all ascribe to abnormal warmth as well. So as a climatologist, is this information at all alarming to you? It's not alarming. It's, uh, it's serious, and it's significant in that it substantiates the uh, arguments and the and the science that's been well documented that we're continuing to see uh, warmer temperatures prevail in a very wide context. Uh, I think I think what was emphatic with the year 2015 was, uh, of course, the El Nino's stamp is on that uh, warm temperature signature too. But also that the uh, global oceans, particularly the, the oceans of the northern hemisphere, are continuing to warm and contribute to this as well. And if we talk specifically about Minnesota here, what does this information that, that came out today mean for Minnesotans, and what kind of a year was it for us here uh, climate-wise? Well, uh, the first eight months of this year, were rather uh, not uh, significant. Uh, they were, uh, I think, for the first eight months, we were warmer. We were uh, certainly warmer than normal, but not by a huge margin. It's the last four months of the year that concluded um, and gave Minnesota, in, a, in terms of its historical perspective, our seventh warmest year of record. So, um, and if we look at the Minnesota record uh, from 1895 to the present, and we rank all years for warmth, we find that 2015 was our seventh warmest year in our Minnesota record. And uh, I imagine for Minnesotans, I, I know that this news is, is kind of nationwide here, but for right. Minnesotans, it's uh, odd timing to get this news when it's been cold here for the last week and a half or so. 
Uh, tell me, what what moving forward do you think we need to do to try to uh, sort of minimize this, this impact on uh, climate change? Well, I think we're already working towards that goal, Scott, uh, in terms of, I, I wouldn't necessarily use the word minimize. We're trying to work uh, towards uh, uh, adjusting for this in two ways. I, I, I think we're, we're lots of sectors of the Minnesota economy, as well as our people in uh, in uh, state and federal government, we're working on what we call climate adaptation. We're trying to find ways that we can adapt to these changes and somewhat minimize their impact on our infrastructure and our natural resources. And then, of course, uh, the second half uh, of the effort is uh, to uh, pursue ways we can mitigate the changing climate and slow it down because we happen to live in an area of the North American continent. Basically, we're right in the middle of the North American continent. And uh, from our landscape position, we're one of the states that's experiencing some of the most change in climate. So uh, I guess it's right that our Minnesota citizens would be concerned about this and and making an effort to uh, both adapt and mitigate this. In your opinion, and, and this is something for me personally, I, you want to sort of appreciate the fact that you're having warmer than usual weather because most of us tend to prefer warmer to colder. Um, but is that the right attitude to have, or should we be more alarmed that there are these significant changes? Well, I think we all need to uh, educate ourselves a little about what this means. I, I'm inclined to believe, as you stated, that min- many Minnesotans, I don't know what fraction, but probably a majority of us, uh, are receptive uh, favorably to the warmer temperatures, but not if it causes a lot of stress. In other words, uh, the economic stress, for example. I know a lot of people are dismayed by the fact that our lakes froze up so late this winter, and so it put a big delay in the ice fishing season. It's already put a huge uh, negative marker on the winter tourism industry for some of our resort owners and people who rely on on customers that want to come and snowmobile or cross-country ski or ice fish or do other things, uh, you know, outdoors. And uh, but on the other hand, you know, it's been good on our heating bills. It's diminished that, and uh, and uh, you know, we haven't had or we're also in a bit of a snow drought. So it's been good on our budgets for snow removal and snow control. And so there's silver lining stories as well as negative stories. And I think we need to be become more widely educated about what those stories are, what those impacts are before we want to universally say, oh, climate change is wonderful or climate change is tragedy. I mean, it goes both ways. Thank you to U of M climatologist Mark Seeley for that insightful look into the big warm-up of 2015. We'll certainly keep a watchful eye on what 2016 brings as well. And in the more immediate future, I'll be talking to a Mayo Clinic doctor about a new survey that gauges people's attitudes about well-being and the health care they receive when Minnesota Matters returns. Technology moves at the speed of innovation. And today, that's lightning fast. So when you get your hands on the latest tech, don't forget to do the right thing with your old devices. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old tech device as easy as purchasing new ones. 
Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the responsible recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find lots of tips to simplify your recycling, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Television sets, video game consoles, smartphones, tablets, they're all recyclable. Don't let them clog up your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. You're sharp enough to get the latest tech tools into your home. Now be responsible enough to get your old devices to the recycler. That's greenergadgets.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. A new survey from the Mayo Clinic takes a closer look at Americans' opinions about aging and health care. I recently talked to Mayo doctor John Wald about the results. Mayo Clinic realizes as healthcare moves forward that we really need to extend our knowledge base and our care base outside the walls of this institution. And a healthy America really means healthier individuals across America. The first step to doing that as with anything in medicine, is to assess the vital signs of your patient. And so this health checkup was really a pulse check of Americans from all walks of life to better understand the barriers that are in place for them leading healthy lives and opinions they have about medicine moving forward. And, Doctor, what are a couple of the most significant findings of the study? Well, we've known for a long time that women were the health managers in the family, and that was reiterated in this study, that women are much more likely to be proactive in their health care. But I think a critically important part of the study was defined when we looked at the differences between men and women and their willingness to schedule critical screening exams in 2016. Women were two times more likely than men to schedule screening exams for such things as colon cancer or breast cancer in women or prostate cancer in men, and less than 25% of the men were planning on scheduling those exams. We must find ways to empower men to take responsibility for their own health care because these types of screening exams are critical to significant disease prevention. And then another element of the study here has to do with aging and different ways that uh, people of different ages look at health care. What did you find there from the study? Well, it was very interesting. We went out and we asked individuals from their 20s up to, their, up to the 80s whether they thought they were going to lead healthier lives than their parents. And in the 70 and 80-year-old age group, we heard a resounding yes. Greater than 90% of those individuals said that they would or have led a healthier life than their parents. But a healthy dose of skepticism remains in those 30-year-olds when they, they believe that they're not quite sure whether they're going to lead a healthier life than their parents. We're not sure why this is the case in the younger generation, but it, perhaps it's due to all the confusion that currently exists in medicine today and we within the medical profession have to continue to give them solutions that will allow them to find ways to lead a healthier life. And doctor, it looks like one of the aspects of the study here is the future of medicine and what diseases we think we may have a cure for in our lifetime. What did you find from the study? What, what are the, the hopes of people that took the study and what is the future of medicine? One of my colleagues would say, the future for medicine is so bright that I need sunglasses. And I agree with that. And there is great optimism out there in the individuals that we surveyed. Over one-third of individuals believe that we're going to have a cure for cancer or for diabetes within the next 10 years and cures for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, or ALS potentially within the next 20 years. 
we need to couple that great optimism with appropriate funding of research so that we can define solutions for these disease and make that optimism a reality. And tell me, what do you do with the information that you get uh, from a study like this? Does this actually have an impact then on, on the future of medicine moving forward and, and what medical institutions are going to be doing moving forward? Well, I hope so. I can't speak for other medical institutions, but at the Mayo Clinic, it's vitally important for us to listen to patients. And in this case, patients mean everything from a healthy individual in their 20s to patients that we see behind our own walls, and then when we send those patients home again. If we're not listening to those patients, then we're probably not defining the right solutions. And doctor knows best really means doctor, consumer, and patient know best together. And what's your message out there for listeners? Uh, you know, at the top of the conversation, you talked about women maybe being more of the health managers and families. What's the, what's the message that you want to get out there to listeners in terms of keeping up on their health and taking care of themselves? Well, the key message is there are many different ways of maintaining a healthy lifestyle. And don't let the barriers that are out there, whether that's work-life balance or caring for other individuals within your family, deter you because you can't care for others unless you're healthy yourself. A healthy individual means a healthy America, which means a healthier state of medicine across the U.S., so let's all be healthy together. And, Doctor, if there are listeners out there who want to maybe find out more about this study and specifically what was in it, where, where should they go? Uh, we've established a well website, healthcheckup.mayoclinic.org. It has the results of the studies, but more importantly, it has links that will help patients lead a healthier lifestyle, links to appropriate exercise regimens, diet, healthy diets, affordable healthy diets, and even links to improving your sleep habits. All right, Dr. Wald, thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. Well, it's terrific to be with you today, and thank you. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.